You're listening to The Fat Guys here on The Fog Network. I'm your host, Matt Rosen, along with my fellow subject matter enthusiast and co-host, Paul Dickerson. Our goal is to be an industry source giving real insights into the renewable energy world. We strive to bring about information on how everyday life impacts the renewable world that surrounds us, with a focus on educating listeners on the history of the industry, its lessons, and the real-world impactful solutions that have come from that, along with how personal, community, and global-level decisions impact the circular fats, oils, and grease economy. Welcome, everyone. Morning, Paul. How are you doing? Good morning, today? Matt. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I woke up in a winter wonderland. So I love the snow personally. I've always been a I've always been prone to winter over summer. It's easier for me to uh well, it's easy to take off clothes, but it's much easier to put on clothes. And I've always liked colder weather growing up in Chicago and really used to colder weather. When I lived in South Carolina, the heat can be unbearable. So I welcome the cold and I welcome the snow uh, with open arms. For some people, don't. So that's why I spend my winters in Florida. Uh, unfortunately, I'm up here in Michigan today. No snow yet, but uh, it was 26 degrees this morning when I woke up. No snow yet? Interesting. Nope. We've had no snow this morning. We're frolicking down like it's uh, like a gentle a gentle mist of snow. But uh, enough about the snow. We're here to talk about fats, oils, and grease management at restaurants and restaurant services around fats, oils, and grease. There's a decent amount of services. The first starting of getting the cooking oil to the restaurant and the front end and everything else on the back end dealing with or or the processes involved of removing, reclaiming, keeping it out of the water system, recycling, and kitchen maintenance behind actually using cooking oils in restaurants. I got my start in this industry working at a used cooking oil recycler where we went restaurant to restaurant out back with our pump trucks and we collected the fryer grease from that the restaurants would recycle, and we'd bring them back and process at our facility. That led to us getting into other services, such such as grease traps, interceptors, power washing, line jetting. And then eventually I learned more and more about how it all starts at fresh vegetable oil delivery. That is really where this whole fats, oils, and grease management and services at restaurants starts. So with learning more about uh, fresh vegetable oil, delivery. Paul, what's a little bit of your background in restaurant services and some things you've seen, very innovative things you might have seen in the fresh vegetable oil delivery aspect of restaurant services? Yeah. So I got started in this space almost 20 years ago. And just like you, we were collecting grease from restaurants. In our case, we weren't making biodiesel, but it was going into a a car club where it was actually going, uh, they were literally running used cooking wheel, a little bit processed directly into old diesel engines. So that was kind of fun in an old car club outside of Philadelphia. But long story short, uh, got involved with another company, and they got all the grease from a company called Restaurant Technologies. And Restaurant Technologies in the late 1990s had an innovative piece where they were literally pumping in fresh veg in a two-tank system into a restaurant. So many restaurant owners probably are familiar with these systems where the cooking oil is pumped into the restaurant into a holding tank. It is then piped over from there into the fryer. And then it's used in the fryer. And when they're done with the cooking to save on the, the mess and the, and the cleanup, they had another button and that pumps it right back into a secondary tank where someone like yourself or myself would have gone and then collected that grease from the restaurant after it had been used. Those systems are highly used in franchises, fast food companies, where you have tremendous volume 
going through the system and you want tremendous control over the process where you don't want any variability. But Matt, you know a lot of restaurants. I know a lot of restaurants. And most restaurants typically buy what's on sale or maybe they've got a specific recipe or formula they're using and they want their chicken to taste the best or their french fries to taste the best or they do something special like duck fat fries on a Saturday. And so those indoor systems are not universal right now. In fact, I would say that uh, something like less than 10% of the systems out there in restaurants are actually those pump-in, pump-out systems. So if they're not getting pump-in, pump-out, if not getting a bulk truck coming and delivering them right, right into their tank, how are they getting their these cooking oil? Or sorry, how are they getting their fresh vegetable oil right now? Well, years ago, it would have been like over your shoulder there. So you would have gotten a, uh, a, a can or a box that would have contained a, something, something solid, actually. So most, most cooking oil back then was typically uh, animal lard. So you would have used uh, pig fat, you would have used beef tallow, some combination thereof. And then we got into hydrogenation of vegetable oils to make them more shelf stable, to improve their, their, their longevity. So Crisco, very famous over your shoulder, is one of the first hydrogenated vegetable oils that people were using in restaurants. And it would come again in a box or a bin, and you'd scoop it out and put it into your fryer. And it, it tasted great, by the way. But we learned later on that hydrogenated vegetable oils aren't great for our health, so we stopped using those. So today it comes into, typically it's liquid. And it comes in a plastic container called a jib. These are roughly five gallons of product. And you literally just pour it right into your fryer. There are some people that deliver it in bins or barrels to restaurants. And then you'd also pump it into your fryer. We talked a little bit about the direct systems where they pump it into the fryers from there, from, from a holding container. But most of your restaurants, it comes in a, in a plastic container, a five-gallon container in a box. Those familiar with big box stores, maybe a Costco or a Sam's Club. And you go down that aisle, you'll see those 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 thirty five pound jibs sitting there, ready to get poured into those those fryers. So if they're not utilizing a system like RTIs, where you have your two tanks, what are those other systems for capturing the used cooking oil? So then a company could come form that service. Yeah. So the, the bulk of them are called grease caddies, and these are square boxes that have little wheels on the end. And a little pump and you literally roll them over to your fryer and a little hose goes up in there and you literally just pump it out into the grease caddy and then you can walk it over and then dump that into your grease bin, typically located outdoors. Although there are some areas where you have the United States where like New York or maybe Philadelphia or Washington, D.C., where people have to store it indoors. So some people will pour that back or pump it back into the jib for removal uh, where you have confined space issues, where you can't have a dumpster outside. Other people will have an indoor tank with a pump it into an indoor tank and someone will pump it out. But the vast majority of it, Matt, after we put it in that grease caddy, it goes into a, looks like a dumpster. It's a big metal square or rectangular device with a lid typically to keep out the rodents and the, and the rainwater. And we put it into those, those bins. And then, as you mentioned, a company comes by and either collects that with a truck, either dumps it like a dumpster, or they'll uh, pump it with a pump truck. So that's one of the interesting things when I finally ventured to New York a couple of years ago. Growing up in Chicago, we have alleys. I've been through many Chicago alleys as a kind of the bug of the industry looking at grease bins in alleys. And I went to New York and I found no alleys and no grease bins in the alleys. And I was on the lookout to watch these trucks come up and hauling out jibs on either loading up pallets and dragging out pallets full of used cooking oil or even running the hose over the sidewalk in and sucking it out from the front of the store through the front door. And I was amazed by that because I started working in the South, a lot of space, 
no problem having uh, grease dumpsters in the back. Even when I came to Chicago, all alleys, no problem putting them in the alleys. And I go to New York, I'm like, it's a whole different world of used cooking oil collection going on in New York City. You should try going to uh, Asia or or even Europe, uh, where the cities are even older and more dense, and uh, you're not even putting it back into jibs. In fact, most of the products that you put into the restaurant goes out the food. Very, very, very rarely is it actually tossed out in some areas. It's just literally goes out in the food, and they just keep adding more new oil whatever they're cooking with to the, to the, to the uh, grease fryer. Yeah. So roughly depending on your oil, we've seen 40 to 60% is consumed directly into food and many, many restaurants do the, what we call the, the top off method. Just keep topping it off, topping it yep. off. And at some point, uh, okay, maybe we should stop topping it off and do a refresh. And that's really a breakdown between a mom and pop. Like you said, always looking for what's on sale for some more, chain restaurant that wants everything the same our process is the same we change it on tuesdays we change it on fridays or we change it every day here's you're opening a franchise here's your book here's how you do it here's what you buy here's what you're supposed to do that's where you see some of the higher production of used cooking oil because their processes and standards say to change it out more regularly i'm sure they're still doing the top off method you can't get away from it if you're cooking a lot of food especially in the midst of the of the lunch rush you're not just going to say, oh, I'm going to drain this out and go pour it out back and fill it up and let it heat to 350 again. It doesn't really work out too well when the customer is banging on the counter for their food. Well, I would, I would hope that restaurants do clean those, those more often because, I mean, things go into the fryer accidentally. You don't want in there, A, and then B, they do need to be cleaned and serviced from time to time. So I would hope that no one is, is just constantly topping off. Although there are a few restaurants that uh, claim to fame they haven't changed their oil in several hundred years. I've heard it's delicious and I've heard it tastes great. I haven't been there, couldn't tell you. <laughs> I'd probably not. Me, you, you might want it, maybe an extra kick in the fries, but for me, I could do without. So Matt, behind you, you've got, you got Crisco and then you've got some, some animal art, there's some shortening, and then I, I think it's a lard, lard tin down below you. We've got what, a little lard tin here. What, what are the bulk of the cooking oils that people are using today, though? So you, you've got, I mean, I talked about duck fat fries. One of my favorite places is a place called Hot Dugs. I don't think it's with us any longer in Chicago. But they used to do duck fat fries on Saturday. So they'd change out that fat and they'd only fry their French fries in duck fat, which was delicious. But what are people cooking with today? So the primary product going into fryers is some type of vegetable oil, whether it's soybean or canola. Might get a little sunflower, something more exotic mixed in there, but it's dominated by soybean oil and canola oil. And part of that is because it's how easy it is to grow so soy and canola mm -hmm. in North America specifically U.S. and Canada. They grow a lot of it. They crush a lot of it. And the big shift in the fats versus oils fight that all fats were bad kind of around the time I was born, that uh, there was a whole transfer from predominantly fats, like you said, to we need to use these oils. But oil technology itself has gotten better. We'll have an entire episode on high oleic versus regular vegetable oils. There's so much that goes into the chemistry and the cultivation to make the distinction of what is high oleic sunflower oil or high oleic soybean oil versus regular. So we can talk about that for an hour or two hours. So we'll do that another time. The short of it is they're thought to be healthier based on their the contents of their, their fats. So soy and canola are the big ones that are used today in the United States, but isn't palm predominantly used in most of Asia? Isn't palm the predominant cooking oil on planet Earth? So yeah, palm is definitely the biggest one out of Asia. 
talked about in our first episode, Southeast Asia and the Oceania area responsible for 80% of the palm export. It's more readily available there and it's it's geographic. We use a lot of soy and canola here based on how easy it is for us to cultivate it and grow it. They use a lot of palm there because they have a lot of palm. So they export it all over the world. It is a dominant force throughout the world. But across the Mediterranean, they fry food, but they use a lot of olive oil because olive oil has been the history of the Mediterranean. So it really is geographic on people are frying in olive oil, not frying in olive oil, but it's a predominantly used in a lot of their cooking. So it's a staple. Now what about peanut oil? I know Chick-fil-A uses a lot of peanut oil and pe- some people with peanut allergies are always worried about whether or not they can eat Chick-fil-A because of peanut oil. But uh, I think uh, other chains that use peanut oil. I'm sure there are plenty use peanut oil. I'm not aware of directly who uses peanut oil. The peanut allergy thing is interesting because a lot of research I've read about peanut allergy, not to get too off topic, is you're allergic to the protein and not the fat. Therefore, when you're in the peanut oil, if you're in the fat or the lipid of the oil, you tend to avoid your allergic reactions against the protein gene that you're actually allergic to. Uh, I don't know how far they've come in that research, but that's definitely one thing I've read. And I've looked at a lot learning about peanut allergies, especially with the kid on the way. Everyone's always worried about peanuts, peanuts, peanuts. Make sure you give them peanuts and you're watching and ready. And I'm just like, I'm not allergic to peanuts. So I don't really know what I'm supposed to be looking for here. Uh, but I've, I've actually looked into that. But a lot, of, a lot of places do use peanut oil. It's uh, very, very common. And you could even find those at Costco. Five Guys. Five Guys is a big one that uses peanut oil. Uh, Carl's Jr. Because have all the peanuts for sale. Yeah, Car- Carl's Jr. does it as well. And then so- some use it in and out a little bit. So Dairy Queen, Hardee's, Jack in the Box, Sonic, and then Wendy's and Whataburger uh, will use peanut oil from time to time in their food mixes. It's interesting, the the time to time, they go back and forth. I guess some of it's about price and some of it's about consistency and what are you really looking for in your food? Because different oils make food taste different. Anyone who wants to uh, test that out, be my guest. I've talked to you, Paul, about actually setting up a food truck just for this point of having three different fryers and frying in three different, the same food in three different, just for people to understand and taste. Here's how it tastes in soybean. Here's how it tastes in your lard. Here's how it tastes in tallow. And and actually cycling those through and showing the same French fry out of the same bag in three different oils has three different tastes. I think the big one is is whether or not it's hydrogenated. So whether or not we're we're trying to solidify that oil at room temperature, because that truly, to me, changes the flavor. But that's the biggest change, I think, in technology in the last 20-some years is that we've moved away drastically from hydrogenated oils, things like Crisco or hydrogenated vegetable oil that we fried in, things that were solid at room temperature and that are now liquid at room temperature. So most of the frying oils that you talked about, peanut oil, soy oil, canola oil, almost all of those, unless they're special in some way, shape, or form, are liquid at room temperature. makes them easy to handle for, for restaurant workers to pump them in, pump them out, and get it to that grease bin out back and, and, and remain liquid right down to where it starts to freeze. In Michigan, the collection company I work with up here, we once caught people with pickaxes and shovels in the deepest part of the winter trying to get the, steal the oil out of the, out of the bin. We kind of let them have it. We said if they're that desperate for it, they can have it. The Grease Pirates is definitely itself an entire episode talking about the liquid gold that people like to refer to as used cooking oil. Um, yeah, today it's more bronze. It's not most of the, 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 the color is off the gold. Might even be tin right now, Matt. Is it's, inflation uh, turned it bronze or? Uh, I don't know if it's inflation, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, let's just say the value of commodities has certainly come down. I think people see this at the pump the most, right? So two years ago, we were all fighting uh, high energy prices at the pump. And then these, these byproducts, our cooking oil, 
is a direct corollary to to what our energy prices are. And remember, we talked about that being binary, I'm, I'm either mm-hmm. a, a BTU or a calorie. And the value of the BTU is down dramatically. So uh, the war in the Ukraine has calmed down somewhat, thankfully. And with that, energy prices have come down somewhat, thankfully. And so we're seeing the value of used cooking oil literally get cut in half. So where it was trading pretty aggressively at 60, 70 cents a pound, today it might be 30 cents a pound. And that's a huge change. And one of the things restaurants have gotten accustomed to is for their used cooking oil, a rebate. So a lot of change. The value has proven to be so strong, especially in the past, that restaurants have learned it's not garbage. It's a wellhead. It's a source for the renewable energy world. And just like your oil patch in for your petroleum-based products, this is an oil patch for our renewables. And they've got accustomed to getting a rebate or getting something in return, mostly monetary cash, for that product a company is collecting. And when the product loses 50% of its value, that rebate check gets really small. So restaurants turn and say, well, what else can you do for me then if you can't give me a bunch of money for this? And that's where a lot of the fog management companies have paired these other services together to add the value into grease traps, interceptors, line jetting, et cetera, not just to use cooking oil. Well, it's worse than that, Matt. It's, it's, I'm glad you brought up regulatory because some areas force through regulation the pump out of the grease trap. They pump out the interceptor. You must do it frequently. Some places like D.C., for example, uh, you got to do it once a month. Other places, I think you had some experience in South Carolina. How frequently does a regulator make you pump out a grease trap in, in South Carolina? Well, South Carolina, it's, it's hit or miss. If you're more in the cities, you're definitely more frequent. You're monthly or quarterly. If you're in the rural areas, you're supposed to be doing it semi-yearly, yearly, but the regulators really aren't venturing off. In Tennessee, when I was in Knoxville, they were every two weeks. They were going through a lot of construction and doing a lot of work to their waste treatment system. And they were people, the restaurants were getting their grease trap pumped every two weeks. But that brings up a point. So, so whereas the crude oil, if the cost to produce the crude oil is greater than the cost I can sell the refined products for, I start producing less crude oil. So in the commodity world, there's two jokes we make. Nothing cures high prices like high prices, and nothing cures low prices like low prices. But the restaurant doesn't have that choice. They cannot throw the grease in the, in the, in the trash. The trash companies don't want it. They have to put it in the grease bin, and they have to recycle it. And today where we're at, the cost, while the cost of gasoline's down, the cost of diesel is not. So if you drive down the road today, you're going to see gasoline maybe with a two in front of it, most likely with a three in front of it. But diesel is in the high threes, if not low fours right now in most parts of the country. And of course, on top of that, the cost of labor, I think all your restaurant tours know this, the cost of labor is up, uh, the cost of insurance is up, the cost of, of, of legal bills are up, slips and falls, and those kinds of uh, things that happen in restaurants. And so the operating expense for the people that recycle that product has more than doubled in just the last 10 years. So the cost of a truck is, is more, the cost of insurance, again, the labor, fuel, all those things are greater than, so while Use cooking oil values have gotten better over time, and right now we're close to our, our, our 10-year average right now, maybe a little higher than our 10-year average, but not much better. The other operating cost for the recyclers has gotten greater. And if it continues in this way, Matt, what people are going to see is start seeing bills again. And so just like an oil well where you can shut down the oil well when, when my, my, my cost gets too high, I can't shut down. I'm not going to stop frying French fries. McDonald's is just going to keep frying French fries because they're too darn good. And we like going to McDonald's and we like getting their French fries. So they're going to have to pay at some point in time 
to dispose of that grease. And this is going to be a hard change for a lot of restaurateurs to go through when they're used, like you said, to getting those checks and getting some value for that grease to suddenly having to face the reality of, well, this is a commodity and right now it's not worth as much as it was worth. Right. And they know, like you mentioned, just how hard it is right now running their restaurants. And it's just as hard running their restaurants as it is running a grease collection company. Yeah. The staffing shortages and training issues and I mean all all the problems that everyone's been running through since COVID, a lot of those problems have not gone away for most people. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing we're seeing automation. I mean, just go to your standard fast food chain today. Chances are the the voice you might get behind the order taking station is actually a uh, AI software or and or you go to a kiosk and you order on your own to try to reduce those labor costs. Well, even I don't know the last time you went through a McDonald's drive through, but they're not the only one. You order on the app, you get to the drive through. It asks you, did you order on the app? You say yes. And then they start making your food. You show up. So you don't even need to talk to anyone. You've already ordered on your phone and they're not the only one doing it. And the next generation, the generation, my generation and the one after me and even the one after them are so adept at using phones and apps that they prefer it that way. They don't want to go in and order. They're like, I could order right on my phone. I could just go there and pick it up or just tell them I'm here and they make it. Wonderful. So it's a little bit of a happy marriage there with the next generation. The challenge is the older generation, yours, the one before yours, they still want to go up to the counter and order their food. So someone better be there to take their order. They don't want well, to mess up the phone. My, my generation doesn't need to go talk to someone. We're, we're okay with that. But I did see at the restaurant show, and I think you were with me, even one step further, and they're adding a, a, literally a robot in between now that next stage. So they literally have a robot grabbing the frozen food out of the freezer and putting that directly into the fryer and then cooking it uh, for a period of time and then taking that back out and, and, and getting it going. And that was, I believe, chicken fingers and french fries. Chicken fingers and french fries. And it was amazing talking to the guy. They placed the orders. The robot gets to see in the order system how many orders of what, and it knows what it's made. So then it goes to the french fry or chicken finger vending machine and takes the basket there and makes it dump exactly how much it wants for its upcoming orders, and then it drops them in the fryer. I'll post the video onto the fog network and uh, so everyone can see it truly truly was amazing and i'm sure the restaurant show next year they're going to be way 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 farther advanced with that technology but getting back to the restaurant services for fat souls and grease management the one thing that i learned a lot getting into this industry about grease traps and interceptors are why they use those little paper things in your french fry basket or your chicken finger basket is not because it protects the basket and makes it look better when it's served. Whenever you're done eating, you'll see that that paper has absorbed a lot of grease. So it's a mitigation effort for the next stage of fog management, which is traps and interceptors. If you didn't have that and you just went right into that basket or right into a bowl and you just wash that bowl out, you're going to wash extra grease down the drain. I have a little diagram here on what grease interceptors and grease traps are. Now, before we go there, Matt, let's let's talk a little bit because you've got you've got two kinds of uh, you got the building envelopes. So there's systems for inside the envelope, and then there's systems outside of the envelope. So talk a little bit about what's in the building versus what's outside of the building. So inside the building, you'll have a grease trap. Now, grease traps and grease interceptors work the same way. Conceptually, have the same idea: trap the grease or intercept the grease from getting into the sewer. That is their goal. What separates them is size and throughput. So in the restaurant, you can't have a thousand gallon tank 
could, but you're not going to put a thousand gallon tank underneath your kitchen to catch all your flow. So you're going to have a little 25 or 50 gallon, maybe a hundred, but most of them are 25 to 50 gallons. They're underneath the sink and they directly catch the grease as it goes through your sink before it goes through the rest of your pipes. Where outside, you'll have your grease interceptor, 1,000 gallons, 2,000 gallons, 3,000 gallon, a large tank underground, actually buried somewhere in your parking lot between your building and the municipal water system. That's one more line of defense from the city from all of the fog generated at the restaurant. So when you're scraping your plates, when you're washing your pots and pans, when you're cleaning your fryer, all that extra grease is captured once inside of the restaurant and captured a second time uh, just in case so that we can avoid clogged sewer systems because no one wants sewage backing up in their home. It's one thing to back up in your restaurant, but it'd be horrible to have sewage uh, back up in your home. And that's why even those papers, that's the first step, getting some grease out of the, from going into the sink. But then you're washing all your utensils. You're washing your, if you ever washed your fryer baskets, if you ever washed your pans, anything that goes into your sink at the restaurant is going to get washed into the drain. And if it goes into the drain, there has to be a catch for fats, oils, and grease. And also, nice thing about a grease trap, it doubles as a solid repository, a solid catch to keep larger solids, organic solids out of the water as well, heavy solids. So here's a diagram of how one works when the there, there's what's called a baffle. So you have this underneath, and you'll see in the middle, there's that barrier or that baffle. Now, what this does is it makes two compartments. I've seen three and four compartment traps. They're generally very, very effective. They're also considered a little bit overkill many of times. Most common thing you'll see is a is a two-part trap or interceptor. The first one is where all your inlet comes in, and there's normally a diverter to divert it down. And then grease or oil floats. It's less dense than water. So you'll see it float up to the top, where in this case, Sometimes there's an opening right here on the bottom. Sometimes there's a through pipe, like this says there's a through pipe. It'll push the cleaner water into the next compartment. Now, again, the outlet is lower. So just in case grease gets through, it will float above your outlet and let the clean water out again. And, and that's how a grease trap or grease interceptor works on a hole. Now, these are only 25 gallons under your sink, which is why they need to be cleaned a little more frequently especially if you're frying a lot of food, you're having a lot of grease buildup because as soon as you hit this pipe, for example, you're going to start leaking grease into compartment two. And if you keep building up en enough, you're going to be sending your grease out to the municipal system. And you're then getting, what happens? Then you get fined. Then you get big, big fines. And if you're not getting fined, eventually you're clogging those pipes. And if you clog those pipes, then you have backups. Then you have a nice uh, $20,000 emergency cleanup bill having someone come out at 1 a.m. because uh, there's grease all over the parking lot and there's grease all over the kitchen and you don't know where this is coming from and it's coming up from the ground. And how is it coming from the ground? Well, you never clean your grease trap or your interceptor. That's how. So maintenance on these is very critical. It's a cleanliness thing. It's an odor thing. Grease doesn't always smell the best, especially when it's just been hanging out with water. Water degrades grease. So they're very, very important. They're hugely, hugely important for the wastewater treatment facilities. They're also just important for good fats, oils, and grease management at your restaurants. Or you'll find the you'll find the interceptors at a lot of your industrial cooking facilities as well. So Matt, you mentioned that some places don't 
really check how often you clean these. And then some places highly regulate this, like you said, in Knoxville every two weeks. What are best practices that a restaurateur can use or anyone in a commercial kitchen space can use? What's, what's a good rule of thumb or best practices? How frequently should these be cleaned and checked? So best practice for a grease trap is monthly and a grease interceptor is quarterly. If you are a low fryer, maybe you only have one fryer, maybe one or two fryers, you don't fry that much food, but you fry a little quarterly for a trap and semi-yearly for an interceptor. But if you're frying food, you're serving French fries, you're serving chicken fingers, chicken wings regularly, you want to be monthly on your traps and generally quarterly on your interceptors. Now, what about jetting? How frequently should you you have your lines jetted? So if you're staying up to date on your fat soils and grease management of your trap and interceptor, jetting is really once a year or if the technician notices an issue. So that technician is going to be out there every month. Their their trap, your trap is going to be like their like uh, their secondhand knowledge at this point. So they'll notice if something is a little off. Maybe there's a little bit more grease they notice this time than the time before. Uh, they'll ask questions if you've changed anything in your process or not. And if you haven't, they'll say maybe you want to get your lines clean because your your flow, your outlet flow, is not as good, and it's kind of backing up a lot of the system. But once a year, at a minimum. I know places that do quarterly, anytime they get their interceptor done, they do it. So places that have a trap and an interceptor, that roll, that crossover time when you do both at the same time is a good time to also do your lines because both systems are empty and you can actually get good vision on your, your hose. Line jetting, for those who don't know, you take a pressure washer, you have uh, specialty equipment with it so you can see the line and scope it and then send pressurized water through it in a very controlled, very deliberate manner to wash out the line, to jet out the line. Uh, but if both systems are empty and have been washed out, you can make sure that everything is flowing through them appropriately, which is why you'd want to do service for line jetting in conjunction with those crossover services. And Matt, I, I, I would recommend that if you're not getting your lines jetted once a year, at least have them inspected because this will be best practices for your insurance claims as well. So if, if you have multiple claims for backups and you've got water damage in, in your restaurant from, from water coming back in, your insurance companies want to, want to see how frequently you've been checking those systems. So we recommend that people have them at least, at least inspected once a year, if not jetted at least once a year to keep those systems in good working order. Right. And, and the inspection is what we'd call line scoping. Basically, you have the little camera at the end of your your hose and you're you're feeding your camera just like they they do nowadays when they look at people's arteries very 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 super tiny ones to see blockages you're running a camera through the pipe to make sure that the pipe is clean there's not build up there's nothing abnormal that's going to cause you problems with the regulatory bodies and or the insurance companies or your employees no no don't like you said no one wants to come in at, at nine o'clock in the morning for prep and see the grease trap backed up and crap all over the floor well yeah and the other part of it is the clogged drain. So maybe not even the grease trap, but the guy mops the floor and some of that mop water is supposed to, and you, or wash the floor and it's supposed to work its way into the drain and it's not draining. And now you got water all on the floor in your kitchen because it's not draining. And that's where keeping these lines clear, making sure it's all working, keeping everyone safe. Safety is big for us and safety I know is huge in restaurants, right? The, the two insurance claims are slips and falls and burns. Uh, my cousin actually had a, had a slip and fall and tore his ACL. He was a sous chef for a restaurant here in the 
in Chicago and tore his ACL and been out for four months now. It's been rough for him, but it happens all the time in kitchens. If it's not safe or, or it's slippery, want to really, really avoid those things from happening. So that's in, inside the building, Matt. What happens outside the building? How, how do you prevent slips and falls outdoors? How do you, how do you prevent uh, the other side of this from happening? So slips and falls outdoors, you'll have an interceptor, a giant big interceptor. You'll see they'll have these cleanouts. You can use cleanouts more regularly than a full than a full pump, but you really still want to do that full pump quarterly. But the biggest thing is for those who aren't using caddies, for those who aren't using a fully enclosed system for use cooking oil. The old method is your five gallon bucket, stick it under the drain on the bottom of your fryer, open the drain and drain into a bucket. Then you walk that bucket out to the dumpster and you dump it. Many of times something occurs where all the grease doesn't find its way into the dumpster, finds its way on the side, finds its way on the ground. Someone leaves the lid open and then we have historic rain and patrols and grease get displaced upwards from water. So then the water fills the, the can and the grease spills over the top, seen it all. So now you have a nice slippery, greasy mess in your either corral or your entire parking lot if it's really bad. And that's where just regular pressure washing service comes into play. A lot of places do this complimentary. A lot of pe- places do extra charge. The complimentary one is more, hey, there's just a little here on your bin. I'm going to make it look pretty. Don't want it looking nasty. The charged ones are, there's a giant mess here in your garbage corral because one reason or another, there's grease everywhere. You really don't, you don't, you shouldn't want anyone to slip and fall or get hurt, whether it's your employee, whether it's our employee, whether it's the garbage company's employee, whether it's a random person walking who's not supposed to be there. So that's where pressure washing comes into play to really clean up the ground outside. The other part of pressure washing is just beautification. Some places want their sidewalks clean once a month and they just want it to look nice. I know we're getting into the winter season now where we use salt here and we're allowed to use salt here in Chicago. And the residue of the salt after the the de-icing leaves this little white residue and the pressure washing companies come around in the springtime after all the snow is, after the snow is not coming anymore. And they do these beautification pressure washers on the exteriors to wash away all the extra salt just so it looks pretty. And a lot of times those are from the fat soils and grease management companies and not necessarily just the local pressure washing. So should people time their interceptor pumping sometime after that? So after all the, the winter snow and all the spring rains and the pressure washing happen, is that a good time to clean your interceptor before the summer? That's a great time to clean your interceptor. Anytime where you're going to be doing a lot of washing, anytime you do a pressure washing with lots of fat soils and grease cleanup issue, you should be looking to kind of pair that maybe uh, with an interceptor pumping. A lot of times that interceptor is placed after your parking lot sewer, believe it or not. So just in case there is runoff, it'll catch through your, your interceptor as well. Interceptors can handle over 50 gallons a minute. Grease traps tend to be eight to 50 gallons. Your, your sink is eight gallons a minute. A lot of sinks run about eight gallons a minute if you just left your sink running, which is why a grease trap underneath is rated for eight to 50 gallons a minute if you're running a couple, a couple spouts there. But that's a great time. A lot of these are in conjunction. Another time is your yearly inspection. If you know your annual inspection is in April every year, you should be looking to time all of these services to occur in March. So everything gets checked out. You get your bill of health. 
if there is a problem, you get to discover it before the regulatory body discovers it. So Paul, you mentioned that, and I just mentioned about the garbage corral area, and you've mentioned about these dumpsters out back. How does someone know what one of these dumpsters is? How are they used and how are they empty? Your dumpster typically is going to sit on wheels, especially in your alleys. You can move them around and and, and push them around a little bit. Sometimes they will not be on, on, on wheels. They'll just be sitting down out there. And most of your dumpsters, you'll be able to tell whether you have a pump service or a, or a dump service. And the difference between a pump and a dump is in warm areas like Florida or, say, California, the product's going to remain liquid year-round no matter what under most circumstances. We have what are called vacuum trucks. And vacuum trucks, well, they're exactly what they sound like. They're a giant vacuum. And they can suck up the oil out of the bin. In other areas, like where we are in the Arctic tundra in Michigan right now, where it's snowing a little bit finally, that oil gets solid at cold temperatures. And so you're not able to actually pump that oil in cold temperatures. So you're forced to dump that entire bin into a, a, a truck that's specially designed, literally, to, to, to pick up grease. And so those little arms, literally chains to, and you'll pick these things up. Some of those act- trucks actually have a water bath where you actually soak the bin in a water bath first to loosen up the hard fat that might be frozen inside there before you dump it in those trucks. That can leave drips. So you'll be able to tell very quickly the outside of your bin, if that's got a lot of drips and spills down of it, typically that comes from having to dump the dumpster versus being able to pump it out, which is a much cleaner process. Yeah. So if any of you have a tub of butter, don't you don't need to do the heat up part, but if you grab that tub and you hold it upside down right out of the fridge, nothing happens. And that tends to happen a lot with these dumpsters in the cold weather. It's frozen. You, know, you go to flip it over, doesn't move. So that hot water bath is really, when I learned about what are referred to as wabos, is to heat up the outside metal to make one thin melted layer between your greaseberg and your bin. If you go warm up the outside, take a hairdryer, and blow hot air around the outside of your butter tub and you flip it over, your chunk of butter is going to drop right down. It's kind of this, the same thought process with these hot water baths. The cool thing about the hot water bath is it takes all the heat directly from the engine of the truck. So it's not, and it's reusing that. It's really interesting in our industry. A lot is reuse, uh, reuse or recycle, not really recycling, but repurposing. You know, the byproduct of running a, an engine is heat. And this truck uses that byproduct of heat to heat up the hot water for this purpose of dumping these. So it's really, really cool. One thing to know, don't go and stand underneath these, please. That bin is anywhere upwards of 2,500 pounds, 3,000 pounds if it's full between the bin and the product. And it's just being held up by those chains. You can get seriously hurt or injured if something were to go wrong. These are professionals. They're trained with the equipment. They have their protective equipment, their hard hats, their glasses, their gloves. They stand off to the side like the gentleman in this photo where the controls are. But please, 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 if you see these, they are really cool. You can watch them. Watch them from 15, 20 feet away. Don't watch them from standing right underneath it. Do not want to get hurt. You do not want... There are sometimes little splashes. You do not want to get splashed on. Yeah, and the other other challenge with operating this kind of heavy equipment, those are so those are um, detached trailers literally being pulled by semi-trucks. And so those articulated trailers can be difficult to back down alleys, can be difficult to navigate in crowded parking lots. So typically those kinds of trucks have to operate off hours. They have to operate overnight conditions 
in all weather environments just so they can get through what we'd call the operating hazards of cars and parking lots, people, et cetera, et cetera, for safety. So the added expense of operating that kind of equipment, like those kinds of trucks right there, Matt, in your photograph, those are two to three times more expensive and require a class A CDL driver, which is roughly 30 to 40% greater expense than a regular pump truck. So in areas like Texas, again, where it's warmer or Florida or Georgia, where it's warmer, the grease companies down there have a lower operating expense than say what you notice up there in New York City. I mean, you've been to New York, the traffic up there is abysmal. Can you imagine driving that truck through the streets of New York City and then trying to pick up bins uh, from, from below restaurants? It would be impossible. Yeah. I mean, I could barely walk in New York City, let alone drive. <laughs> so, But they're really cool. The first time I saw one, I was amazed. I'm like, what is this? They're flipping over a, a container full of liquid with almost some, a lot of times, no mess. The cool, other cool thing about these trucks is they do have a pump on them. So think if that bin is really full and you're bringing it up and it's shaking around, they have the ability to pump off the top foot or six inches or foot and a half. Uh, some of its operators' discretion, the more experienced operators tend to pump a little less if they're more used to handling heavy bin. A less experienced operator, we would say, hey, you should really pump this a third of the way down. Make sure that you're not going to make a mess. If you make a mess, you're stuck there cleaning it up. So not, let's not make a mess. Let's do it safely. You also take off some weight. One gallon is seven and a half pounds. So this bin is probably 300 gallons capacity. So if you could take out 50 gallons, you'll be able to get 400 pounds of weight out of that bin to help the pneumatics of the system, safety overall, no spills, etc. But they are cool to watch. If you see one because you're out at night, give it a watch. I like watching them. I think it's relaxing. I also like the sounds of mechanics. going. So the other cool part about these bins specifically, these are actually asymmetrical and they have these little ears on the side and these ears on the side catch the ears catching the arms. So because they're asymmetrical and when it goes over the top of the truck, when you start to lower the chains again, that's what makes them flip because the weight is distributed and then they flip forward to dump it appropriately. Uh, It's really, really cool to watch. So again, I suggest watching it if you get a chance, stay 20 to 25 feet away. So you're safe. So Matt, we've talked about how, how grease gets into a restaurant. We talked about how grease gets out of a restaurant. We've talked about best practices for keeping your restaurant clean and avoiding bottlenecks and backups in there. What are some other things that people should think about when it comes to grease handling in the restaurant? There's another innovative company that does filtering. So they actually come in and they filter your cooking oil in your fryers. Paul, I know you have why a lot they of do, Why do they do that, Matt? So they do it for longevity. Paul, I know you have a lot of experience with them. So they'll actually come in, they'll and this is their service, their core service. Um, it's actually one more service to the fat soils and grease management if someone would want to use them. Is they, they come in and they pump out through a filter system and pump out through a filter system and in back into your fryer. So they'll filter out all your small solid particulate, anything else. To You won't get back to a virgin oil state, but you'll get back to a, a cleaner state. And then you top off then. Some people have them come daily some people have them come weekly but they also if you're they'll be able to determine if your oil is like fully spent okay 
you're not going to get the goldenrod color that's been in there too long. You need a full change. And they actually do all the handling for you. That is another way to mitigate a lot of your restaurant risk is not having your employees do the handling. And there's actually forgot the kind of the most one of the most challenging fat soils increased services, which are industrial hoods or commercial hoods. Some people have the range over their stove at home, the big hood that sucks it up. Well, you have to have these over your fryers. If you ever thrown cold or frozen food into a fryer, you'll see all the smoke come up. And with that comes up a little bit of, gosh, what's the word? Grease, fog. It aerosolizes. Yeah. Fat will aerosolize your cooking. So as you're cooking, fat aerosolizes uh, and it will stick to almost everything around you. So almost all of your restaurants, the equipment is made to pull back from the walls so you can you can wash the walls, you can wash the floors and keep it clean. And of course, that grease is going down the drain back to our trap again below the restaurant and our interceptor outside. And those have to be cleaned regularly. So another thing that happens in, in restaurants is, is, is that fat aerosolizes and goes into the vent hoods above your, your commercial area. We're cleaning the filters in the vent hoods, but we're not cleaning the ductwork. That's a very, very challenging process because A, you can't clean that while you're cooking. And so t- you're not cleaning that during your normal hours. That's something that happens typically at night when you're not there because, again, all that dirty oil and the water from cooking and the chemicals, the cleaning agents that you're using to clean those vent hoods, that's dripping back down. So you have to move the equipment out of the way and do those things. And typically that's handled by a different company than your normal fog company, typically. Now, there are some fog companies that bundle those together, but one of the biggest challenges we have today is that is uh, notoriously where fires will happen. So just like your chimney at home, if you don't clean your chimney uh, of creosote, it can catch on fire from time to time. So I recommend you clean your chimney at least once a year if you're burning fires. My wife and I, we do it twice a year. But you clean your vent hoods at least quarterly um, if you can. Because if you get a fire up in there, your insurance company might not protect you in the event of that fire uh, with your claim. The risk of fire is one reason why many fat soils and grease companies don't get involved in hoods. Now, with all the chemical you have to use to clean the hoods, it makes a much less recyclable product. And in some cases, there's not much uh, recyclable material or recapturable material of value. And so the challenge becomes liability. If you say you cleaned a hood and then it catches on fire the next week, you're going to be liable or potentially liable for not doing a good job cleaning the hood. And to dissociate it from all the other lower risk activities that they're more lower risk for fog management, but they also are risk mitigation for the restaurant. That's kind of where many of these companies find their groove. But the the hoods are definitely a challenge. Everyone's always looking for someone to do hoods. And I would highly suggest companies that specify directly in hood hood cleaning. So people might wonder how you can get a fire starting in, a, in up above you. But anyone that's been in a commercial kitchen knows that sometimes you're deglazing a pan with uh, maybe cooking wine or maybe even bourbon. You know, you, you, people have seen uh, bourbon dishes these days or some kind of alcohol, and those things can flare as well as the cooking wheels. So if you're cooking with oil and you're tossing your pan constantly, whatever it is you're sauteing or frying, pan frying, that oil can spill and then it can flare up. So almost all of your vent hoods also have fire suppression systems built in, but it is easy to catch on fire. And so again, restaurants do a phenomenal job of keeping things sanitary for cooking, but that's typically up to about here. It's that pipe that goes up and out the roof or out the side of the building where we have our challenges. 
that's not easy to clean. And interesting enough, for those who know Brown's Chicken, we had a Brown's Chicken used to be much larger than it is today. And I actually have a Brown's Chicken, old people, olden days would call it a stone's throw from uh, my house. They just closed down, uh, I think six or eight weeks ago, I'll pull the article up, because they had a kitchen fire. And they'd been open for decades in this location, and they're gone. I'm sure they hadn't been up to date on their on their hood cleanings, and they had their kitchen fire, and now they're closed down, and there is a uh, vacancy sign. They had to do a bunch of remediation work. It was in a strip connected to 15 other businesses. It was a huge, huge thing when this place was on fire, and there's uh, 14, seemingly 14 fire trucks there. Probably it was only like two, but it was loud. Uh, we're sitting at home like, what's going on? All these sirens. Uh, it was pretty easy to figure out uh, brown chicken caught on fire. But uh, it happened. I hope everyone was okay, Matt. That's sorry to hear that. That's that's oh. uh, those can be dangerous. And and uh, hope everyone, everyone was, was okay. okay. Thankfully, no casualties, nothing major. But uh, a community staple, whether or not people want a a former community staple now gone. It's been a little less busy than it used to be in the past, but been there for a long time. And if you neglect these items, it happens. It will happen. And it's also not just you when you're in a strip mall. You have to think about the other the other tenants and the other your other neighbors and how you can impact all of them. And that's just about being a good neighbor. This is really about uh, making sure you stay up to date on all your fat and grease management items for your restaurant. So anyone who's looking for more information, wants to learn a little bit more, we have some short videos here on our YouTube page. Go check them out. Little animated videos about these services and how they work. You could also go to our website and you'll be able to see resources. You'll be able to see our glossary, all of our episodes. If you don't know what a term meant and you wanted to go look, you'll be able to see the glossary of everything we have and uh, or go to resources. You'll be able to see more resources on these services. So Matt, what are we talking about next time? So following up services, we're going to talk about liquid gold and the grease pirates. So theft is a theft is a huge, huge challenge for any servicer. And as we mentioned a little bit today, when we're talking about rebates and restaurants expecting something in exchange for their commodity, there's value there and people like any other commodity ever want to steal it and make that value their own. Look forward to it. Talk to you soon. See you next time. For more industry insights and education on how you can interact with the circular fats, oils, and grease economy, please like, subscribe, leave a comment, and ring the bell to get a notification when our next episode drops. Follow us on X at Fat Guys Podcast and find out more information on our show site, thefatguyspodcast.com. Thanks for stopping by.